Hello, folks. It's your loyal host, Joseph Noop. And as always, I'm glad you're here with us. On this week's episode, I am delighted, honored, and just slightly terrified to be bringing you the one and only Tina Amini, who just celebrated her one-year anniversary as Editor-in-Chief of Games at IGN. I've really admired Tina for all the work she's put into IGN, especially when the company has had, shall we say, a rocky year. Let's face it, all of games media is perched on a very precarious cliff, but that doesn't have to spell doom for any one site, not if they're willing to grow and learn alongside whatever mistakes or shortcomings they encounter. That's what I really like about Tina. Coming from freelance roots, then Mashable, then Kotaku, and back to freelance for a time, she's one of the most humble and thoughtful games media leaders I've had the privilege of speaking with. Tina and I chat about her year at IGN, what she's learned in the process, how she's learned from setbacks, and her thoughts on the constantly shifting landscape of games media and the industry. If you want someone who knows her stuff about the issues and trends that impact the games we love, you can't go wrong with the person at the peak of the media mountain. As always, please support the 1099 by sharing the show on Twitter or Facebook, supporting our musician at zwbuckley.com, and give Tina some love too. I'll also be at the Game Developers Conference from March 17th to the 23rd, so if you are too, please make sure to say hi. I'll be doing a number of smaller interviews to hopefully pepper throughout the week, and here's the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you know her as a former deputy editor for Kotaku, former games editor for Mashable, and now the lord slash empress of video games journalism in her current role as IGN's editor-in-chief of games. It's Tina Amini. Hi, Tina. How are you? Hi. That's actually exactly what my business card says. How did you know? <laughs> does, it, does it also, like, glitter with the blood of your enemies? I would like it to glitter, maybe not with the blood of my enemies, but I like sparkly things, so oh, that's a good I'm idea. Sure I'm going to submit that. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, someone grabs it at GDC or E3 or something like that. Oh, why does it hurt to grab? Oh, glitter. Oh. And then when they like put it in their pocket and they find glitter three years later, they're like, I know. Oh, that's the Tina. that's the real trap. Yeah. Glitter is an actual crime as good as it looks. Well, how are you doing on this uh, over here in the Chicago area? It's kind of a gloomy overcast. Uh, what, what is today? Thursday. Uh, when we're recording this anyway, it'll be Monday when the show goes up. But how are you doing over there in sweet old San Francisco? Good. It's our winter time, I guess, is what this is. Uh, it's my first winter time in San Francisco, and it is also gloomy and overcast. Uh, I miss the sun. I don't. I miss the sun and vitamin D. Did you say and it's I your first winter back. time? Yeah. Because uh, the obvious, the obvious point of uh, congratulations here is you're celebrating on March 5th. You celebrated one whole year with IGN. So first off the bat, congratulations on that. Thank you. It's been a blur, blur of a year. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll start off first and most important question. Who is your favorite Gen 8 Pokemon starter and why is it Sobble? Ooh, boy. <laughs> I know, right? It has to. I feel like the only answer is Sobble. I mean, I know that um, that's not the the like Internet generated uh, universal um, universal assessment just based on like polls that at least we've run. Um, but it has to be Sobble because, you know, somebody needs to love Sobble and, and it could be us collectively. Why not? And he's so relatable. He's, you know, a.k.a. Weepfrog, a.k.a. Uh, yep. I did, like Tom Marks is coming up with like 12 different damn names. 
Yeah, exactly. He's uh, he's too lovable. And that's interesting to hear that, like, yeah, you guys have some amount of polling data on that. It makes me think of IGN as a sort of uh, <laughs> the IGN pack, we'll call it. Yeah, I mean, well, we we run polls on uh, the site itself, but also we run it on social. And I think I've seen other people run polls, too, and it's always score bunny. I, I guess I can see why, you know, bunnies are cute. So, like, I saw I, I had to do, like, a meme roundup of, of the uh, Sword and Shield Pokemon uh, for daily.com. And the one that actually did speak to me for score bunny was uh, comparing him to uh, King Cosma, who is a like Kung Fu bunny fighter from the anime film uh, Summer Wars by Mamoru Hosoda of Wolf Children fame and Mirai fame and all that. And I was like, oh, oh, it's getting real close here. Like, I love Sobble, the, the existentialist panic attack of the millennial generation. <laughs> But man, you just compared Score Bunny to like one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, but, but Sobble is all of us. Let's roll into some of the big questions. How first off, how are you feeling looking back on a whole year? You said it was kind of a whirlwind ride. What what did you learn along the way? What did you uh, what what friends did you make along the way? Truly, the journey was the friends you made along the way, right? <laughs> it always is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, a, a year is so short when you think about it. Yeah, um, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't sound that way, and in the middle of it, it doesn't feel that way. But when you look back, it's it's just a blink of an eye, and a year goes by, um, which is depressing in a way, uh, just for our youth. But uh, I, I learned a lot, and I, I think one of the things that I realized early on was most of the time, I've been through a couple jobs now, and most of the time, there's a learning curve of about three months. At IGN, I think the learning curve is about six months. So six oh, months okay. before you're like fully adjusted, feeling like you're, you know, you've got your, your um, head around how things work. Uh, and that you can actually start to like make any kind of impact and real change and you're not just playing catch up and learning a thousand people's names. Uh, so I think that's like one of the like the most the early on like experiences that I felt that was very unique to IGN. Um, but the like out of all of the jobs that I've had, especially in the video game industry, um, journalism industry career, is that this like our operation here is so big and we have so many different departments working in conjunction with one another. And it can be hard to facilitate like communication across those departments. So I had to learn very quickly like who does what, on what angle, and when I need to reach out to this person or that person. And like just being able to wrap my head around such a large organization like that, like it's, it's a really big skill actually to develop because I've always mostly been in smaller teams and it's so easy you just like turn around and say like, hey Bob, like can you go do this thing for me? And it's as simple as that. Um, you literally yell, yell across here. an office kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we know we do that here, too. Uh, it's just that we're, we're a global company as well. So there's people that we have to reach out to internationally. So time zones get in that way. And I had the time zone um, operations at Kotaku as well because we had someone in Japan and someone in Australia. But it was one person in each of those places. Mm. So it was much easier to coordinate between. And it felt more like a baton handoff than it did like a simultaneous organizational thing. So here we're operating at like all cylinders at all times, just rapid fire across the board. You know, at the at the risk of making this podcast sound like a job interview, uh, I, I I can kind of sympathize with the way you feel in those like first six months to a year. Uh, I when I was in college, I and a uh, fellow student of mine or fellow a peer, uh, he and I co-founded a games culture kind of focused student outlet called Byte BSU uh, for Ball State University, and 
in a year, in, in only a year and like maybe a, a month, we went from just the two of us to like a full operation of 20 people. And, and it was totally like, you know, a bit, a bit ramshackle and like learning along the way. And we're, of course, you know, practically children at that point, uh, making as, as many mistakes as children can. But I learned it's so hard to make everybody happy. And at times, as the leader of, a, of an organization like that, sometimes that's just all you want is like, come into this meeting room and tell me how I can like facilitate your dreams and like help you out. And I still do that to this day of, of reaching out to some of their students and, and saying like, you know, Hey, uh, what, what do you need from me? Is there anything I can do in my spare time to kind of help you guys get more out of the like, you know, short time you have with this organization. So it, it must be tough for you to uh, juggle all that and make people happy at the same time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you have certain priorities that you want to meet. Like for me, let's say Mortal Kombat one week is one week in its existence. Mortal Kombat is very popular, not just one week. Um, but, you know, that might be my priority that week week is I really want to focus on you know, a new story trailer hit and we want to like dissect that. Maybe we want to do a rewind and we want to do whatever else. But I also want to give time for people to feel like they can express themselves creatively, too. And I always feel very passionately about helping people do that because if something matters to you, chances are there's a good group of people out there who that would resonate with and it also matters to them. And I, I use ourselves as almost kind of like crowdsourcing to see like what's the temperature on Pokemon? What's the temperature on Mortal Kombat? You know, what are, what are the things we're feeling? Because undoubtedly this is like a smaller pool set of, of people and opinions and undoubtedly what we're feeling has some sort of resonance out there in the world. So it's always a good idea to help people find ways of talking about the things that matter them too. Um, and in the midst of that, it's also, you know, what are the skills you want to develop and how can we create content in a way that helps you develop those skills uh, and helps us like tell the story that you feel is worthwhile to tell and in the way that you want to tell it too. But it is certainly a lot of people that, you know, you, you need to, because we have so many people here, it's difficult for me. I wish I could, you know, make sure that I stay on, on top of everything and everyone every day. Um, but it's it's a matter of making sure you're like jumping back and forth in between them to, to try, try, try to touch on all of that all at once. I'll ask you a, a very Jared Petty kind of question. Who are you, <laughs> who are you uh, most grateful for at the IGN family? Oh, that's a tough one because it's, it's, I've always had a hard time like playing favorites for anything. Like I have a very go-to answer for what my favorite game is because I really just honestly don't have a favorite because I love so many. And there's so many people here that I love and have been invaluable to me and my experiences. But if I had mm -hmm. to shout out one person, I would absolutely shout out Sam Claiborne because he just like carried me for those you know first six months that I was really adjusting here. And he'll never admit to it because he's the most humble guy you'll ever meet. But um, he just like is my go-to person. Anytime I had any question about anything or any department, he was there to help me out. I mean, he's been here forever, so he knows the ins and outs very well. But he's one of the most supportive uh, colleagues that I've ever worked with before. So I would have to give him the, the hat off, the tip off. You know, and, and I'll echo that, too, because like the, the few times I've managed to uh, say hello to Sam in public, uh, you know, I, I visited the IGN office on uh, it wasn't one of the first Friday things. It was uh, Cassidy Moser bringing me in just to say hi to a few of the people I'd been working for. Uh, Sam remembered me, even though we hadn't like really interacted over email that much, you know, uh, certainly compared to so many people. But, yeah, no, Sam, the power of that stash, man, that that is some <laughs> Dragon Ball Z level power in that man right there. 
Yeah, and you know he would hate that we were talking about him at all because he, he gen- <laughs> he's just so down down to earth. Um, but there there really are just so many people here. Like my my counterpart Terry Schwartz has been um, who's the EAC of entertainment. Yeah, me too. I mean I've known Terry for like a decade. We've been friends forever. Um, I hired her now husband. Uh, he was one of when I was new in the industry. He was new in the industry. I was running the games channel at Complex Magazine, and I, you know, gave him a freelance job and turned that into a part-time job. And we've just been fast friends since then, including Mike Terry is, myself. Uh, Mike is actually the reason I, I got into games freelancing uh, over at Playboy when they were very just just go. starting that. So it's all cyclical. It's all yeah. it's all connected. Red tape yeah, and he, everything. He paid it forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like, you know, Terry being my counterpart, uh, we have like an amazing relationship together and it's just, it's so easy when you're already friends. Um, so we have great rapport and like Pear has been an amazing boss too. Um, probably my, my favorite boss ever. So it's, there's just lots of people here who've become like really good colleagues, but also good friends too, which is nice. And so that, that begs the question of uh, how do you run a, a giant games media company in an age that's increasingly defined by personality-based media? You know, we, we see this with Twitch and with YouTube and even with uh, uh, outlets like Kind of Funny. That, that was all based off of the personality and the following of a few individual people who are more or less kind of going through the same, you know, here's the news update, here's our review of something. And they'll do different things to, of course, differentiate themselves, but it's personality-based. How do you run a big, big media company in the age of something like that? And how do you let their personalities kind of shine through? So it's funny because um, media in a way has bifurcated into that, like those two levels of this like traditional media and journalism um, that's run behind a brand. And then this new wave of like, you know, singular entities like you're describing. Um, and I like IGN and any brand will always be that brand. Like Kotaku in, in a weird way, you know, my, my uh, alma mater, um, is in a weird way like almost unrecognizable to me in the sense of this, the bylines. Like a lot of the bylines there are people that I haven't worked with before, but Kotaku is four years of my life. But Kotaku is still Kotaku. It still has a personality and a definition of its own. And same with IGN, same with any other brand. And so I think that like traditional media still has that a personality of its own in almost an inescapable way. Like there are things about IGN that you know I would like to change or adapt or or add to but people have like ideas about who IGN is and to combat that you know requires just consistency mm-hmm. uh, and when it comes to personalities um, that won't always be consistent because people move on um, the running joke is that in media you only ever last for four years and then you it's you know it's cyclical in that sense where you just move on to the next place the next place you probably return to a job you used to have and then do you know go on so on and so forth. Um, but so that will always be shifting, but it's kind of, you know, whoever is in a hiring position always looks at like what the brand is, what we want it to be, and then what voices match in that sense. So even though the personalities do change, there's a certain level of consistency between them, I would say, um, that like has, you know, people have the expectation of, or it's just the style of internally that like we consistently, you know, I might have a certain kind of humor and I'll like a certain kind of humor will therefore resonate with me. So I'll inevitably probably keep going for that style in that sense, if that makes sense. It's a little bit like very like overhead picture. In a, in, in a way, it makes me kind of think I interned at Game Informer back in late 2015. And even though a lot of those people, uh, like uh, I think Brian Shea came from, uh, Austin, Texas, or Houston, or something like that, and uh, certainly other people. He also came from used to other... be a freelancer of mine. Oh, it's, it's just <laughs> Brian's one great. Big family. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, like, even even though they 
probably came from a, a variety of places. Uh, a good chunk of them did come from Minneapolis area. You could you could still feel a sort of Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, kind of Game Informer style voice. And that always struck me as, as very significant. And I do feel that with a, a lot of IGN folks. So the, the way that you know, uh, Brian Altano or Max Scoville can kind of slip into uh, an up at noon style show, but then they can also have Cassidy Moser on who, uh, you know, she's been on her fair share of stuff, but obviously nowhere near as much as, uh, uh, Altano or Scoville. And they, they all seem to, because maybe they're friends and they work together in the same office, which is a, a very special, lovely thing. I, I wish I could do that as a freelancer, but they all seem to mesh together really well and have that kind of friendly conversation you know, it feels like friends are talking to each other, right? Yeah, and you, you, when you spend a lot of time with people, you start to pick up little mannerisms and things. And, um, you know, there are like little phrases that we use internally in the office that I notice that I've started to use or like ways that we greet each other that I realize like I'm starting to pick up now. So whenever you spend <laughs> oh, yeah. a lot of time with someone, like your, your um, phrases and mannerisms start to kind of meld into each other and you borrow from each other. So you inherently like adopt that kind of rapport. My uh, my partner lives with a family who has an 18 year old kind of kind of surfer esque daughter, and she does that little like uh, kind of not devil horns, but like the yo man kind of hand wave thing where uh -huh. your pinky extend pinky and thumb extend out. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. And she adopted that, and now I'm doing it. And I was like, oh no, I live in Chicago, and I'm doing like some West Coast <laughs> <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um. Uh, Zach Ryan, our one of our video directors here, he does the same thing, and I haven't picked that one up yet because it's not my thing. But like, I immediately associate it with him like there are just little oh, things boy. like that for sure so you know and, and speaking of learning more about the industry as we kind of go along and and the the shifting of, of media big and small you wrote this really interesting piece for waypoint holler at you know austin danielle rob zachney yeah. all the rest you wrote this piece called why it's so hard to make games and this was 2016 so i suppose you must have been like kind of in between jobs or freelancing or something like that yeah i was taking um i was doing this like tech project and also freelancing at the same time i took like a brief stint off journalism off of uh games journalism to experiment so yeah so so the piece was called why it's so hard to make games and it's a really simple title but like i was actually a little stunned at like how long and and deep into it you went i think you interviewed like what 10 to 15 people and, uh, and I think you were either slightly ahead of the field or maybe like right on the front lines of it in that respect, because you've, you've seen even major media outlets like IGN or GameSpot or Kotaku kind of couch their features and interviews and whatnot in the idea that, you know, hey, uh, games are really, really hard to make. And it's amazing that they happen at all. And I've certainly, I, I've talked to my share of AAA and indie developers to know that like the, the experience is pretty universal. Like sometimes you have a better pipeline of attacking a game, but the fact that games happen at all and ship uh, even even remotely uh, workable is, is amazing. So, uh, what do you think about that shift in games media to being kind of more sympathetic or empathetic of game devs and their jobs? I think it's just more aware. And like, I, like there's a lot of, um, you know, in the, in the process of, uh, in my many years of um, journalism experience in this field, um, there's a lot of my experiences are, you know, PR rushing in and saying, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. And that mm -hmm. still happens, of course. I mean, in any kind of, um, any kind of communication. There are certain things that just can't be talked about and that's fair. Um, or that they're not ready to or whatever the case may be. But I think it's more about people getting on that end of, you know, the the actual industry, turning around and being a little bit more comfortable and understanding the value of transparency, sort of what I was speaking to earlier. And like trying to get people on board 
with understanding like here's why we couldn't deliver that feature that we may have debuted at E3. It's because like it just didn't come together and we decided that there was this other priority we wanted to pursue because we felt that made for a better experience. You know, as a group of professionals who have the experience um, and the understanding of like, you know, what makes a game fun to play or functional to play, uh, and they certainly have the resources to test that stuff out through QA, um, you know, there should be some level of trust there too. And so I think it's partly like the industry being more comfortable to expose their vulnerabilities because no one wants to be exposed as vulnerable, but everyone is. Everyone has their aspects to being vulnerable. And so I think owning that, there's power to owning that and there's relatability to owning that. And so when they do, we're able to kind of see behind the curtain a little bit more. And so the empathy comes along with the understanding and asking the right questions and understanding where people are coming from. So I think it's on both sides. We're getting a little bit better about communicating with one another. And you see like different angles of, of results that come out of that. So on, on one side, people might be a little bit more understanding, you know, the reasonable part of the audience who's listening and has that understanding is able to then have more context uh, to be on the same page as someone else. Basically, you get that buy-in from that person, right? And then on the other side, you might have people that say, well, I don't care, like this should be the case anyway. And then mm -hmm. in that case, you know, you've done what you could. At the very least, you can rest easy knowing, well, you know, we've, we've put in X, Y, Z amount of work. We've looked into doing ABC. And unfortunately, pie-in-the-sky uh, dreams are labeled as such because they are, you know, not quite possible all the time. And so having that understanding helps us kind of tell those stories in a more real way. And, and I think like my, my favorite kind of interviews are always the one where uh, maybe maybe sadly like they've, they've trotted out the, the most notable game dev from this team. And I, I sometimes I'll notice that like mm, they, they seem a little tired, maybe on like their 10th interview of the day. Mm -hmm. And I really like I feel a personal kind of a connection to that uh, person, even though in some sense, like I, I feel like some hard line journalism uh you know scholars might kind of uh balk at that uh i do i do feel a connection to the person i'm talking to especially if they have you know been had like having a rough time or a, a busy schedule and i want to make their their interview at least you know somewhat unique and somewhat fun and uh i think you see more and more of that every day too with the um oh what was the point you raised just there sympathy and empathy you see it maybe more too in the personality-based media of of something like kind of funny and and what IGN strives to do and GameSpot, where we like the audience that drives themselves to places like IGN or GameSpot, they no longer really want to be kind of told in a very dry, bland way like what game is the coolest this year. They want to have they want to hear a friend having a conversation about it, right? Yeah, it gets more to a level of like feeling like the conversation is more familiar and so it rolls off a little bit more naturally and it feels a little bit more like you're part of the conversation rather than you're watching an interview so yeah there's definitely value to that you know i actually and and it just came back to me so you mentioned something <laughs> along the lines of in in this industry especially we talk a lot now about uh, crunch and overwork and the treatment of game developers and what it's what it's like on the front lines uh for better or worse uh, sometimes mostly worse. And I think <laughs> I, I, I think in a way, a lot of games journalists, especially the ones who've had to hustle extra hard and didn't get a lucky break, you know, right out of the gate, they can understand that in a better sense. And maybe they sympathize with developers who say like, yeah, you know, we worked three years in this game and it sold like maybe 10,000 copies, which is, it isn't going to make a single investor happy. And uh, in a way, 
you see you begin to see and that maybe that in some reason is why uh, a lot of game journalists turn to uh, development along their career paths uh, what, what do you think about that uh, which part that people transitioning I, or the the uh, idea the, the, of like we can relate because we also work for a yeah, hard thing the yeah. idea that we okay. can relate gotcha so yeah I mean ultimately like all of us, whether we're on the journalism side or people that are actually working on video games, we're all doing this because we love video games. Like mm -hmm. it, it really all boils down to that. And what that inevitably means is people, either because of bad structures at certain companies that are um, maybe forcing uh, people to work overtime, and I'm sure or I hope that they're being properly compensated uh, in a lot of like, you know, obviously it's dependent city by city, country by country, what the rules are. Um, but a lot of places do have like contingencies in place for that kind of thing. But even in you know the worst case scenario, whether it be that worst case scenario or the best case scenario of someone just be through their passion are fighting through because they really want to nail that one aspect of a thing. You know, I've certainly put in time after work hours to work on a story. Mm -hmm. um, that piece that you mentioned earlier, uh, the one that I did for Waypoint, uh, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of time on the phone. It took a lot of time transcribing, a lot of time doing follow-ups, writing, editing, you know, getting assets, negotiating, those kinds of things. But I did it because I was so passionate about telling that story. And ultimately, you know, maybe um, in some areas of the industry, compensation doesn't match uh, that level of effort. And that's certainly something that we should be striving towards. And I'm really happy that people are beginning to have those conversations. I think in a lot of ways, um, we like, you know, in the, around the, in or around the video games industry, we're starting to become more and more progressive and thinking more and more about the human beings behind the scenes, uh, which is great. And it, but it, you know, it really does come back down to that level of enthusiasm and, and the amount of work that people want to put it, them into. But it's kind of like, if you think about the work structure of vacation time and the difference between like, you get your standard, uh, well, U.S. standard two weeks versus, Actually, we have a policy at the company where you can take as much vacation time as you want. Typically, the statistics show that people who get that flexibility of take as much as you want according to your manager's approval don't take as much as when you have the regulated two weeks. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing to think about. Like If you don't force people to take their time off, they might get so embroiled in their work because they're so passionate about making sure it's done and it's done well. And a lot of developers I've spoken to uh, say similar things. They say that, you know, when they've when they've moved um, into a company, even if a company has or doesn't have a reputation for crunch, uh, that they almost self-inflict it because they want to see the thing that they work on worked on work well, and they know that when the game comes out, there's going to be a great reception for the things that they did well, and that brings them a lot of like um, a lot of pride. Uh, and I, I certainly feel the same way too, but we need to be careful about being healthy in in between that. Uh, and it's not always easy to remember, you know, take a vacation and take a lunch break and remind yourself to do those things. You know, I, God, it's funny you mentioned that because just the other week I, I finished up a, like an SEO thing for a PC game where I think it was like Mortal Kombat 11, everything we know kind of thing. And yay, uh, I'm so excited for some of those <laughs> characters. Uh uh baraka for life but <laughs> uh i i finished the job at like 
9.30 or 10 p.m. when I should have been like, you know, paying attention to my partner and, and like getting some rest and food in me. And I and I messaged uh, editor Wes Finland over uh, Google Hangouts or whatever. And he was like, good job, Joe. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you're right. I'm so sorry. Uh, but and and. That kind of brings me into the next question I've got for you. You know, by the time this podcast comes up, GDC will be just around the corner. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's it's been an interesting year for the games industry. We've, uh, aside from some of the, the E3 stuff going on, we have a lot of talk about, you know, unionization and the way workers are treated in the industry. And uh, Game Workers Unite, kind of the, I, I just had Emma Kinema on the show, uh, a co-founder of Game Workers Unite. Folks can check out that podcast if they want to. Uh, we were talking a lot about just the way, like you said, treat workers are either kind of given a mandated two weeks or here's, here's the benefits we provide, or they're told like, you know, Hey, we're a, we're a family here. Uh, and you know, uh, we'll, we'll let you decide what you want, but then there's the social pressure. Yeah. Of, you know, Hey, Ooh, we, we need to meet that deadline. Are you sure you should take uh, a week off to go hang out with your family at Disney world or something like that? And, you know, what are your thoughts on the industry in general and the, some of the big, big shakeups we've seen as far as, uh, you know, studio layoffs and crunch and uh, the way workers in the industry are beginning to react to it? It's crazy that layoffs have become or like studio closures, too, have become so commonplace. Like it almost feels like every week you're hearing about something. It's not every week. Something like something like 2000 people laid off in the last like five or six months. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy, especially when you're seeing like all those numbers stacked up against each other. And I think it's mm -hmm. a lot of the nature of the industry and the, the, you know, the structures that people have gotten accustomed to. And I think, you know, the, the developers I've spoken to at least all feel like, well, this is just the way that it is. And like, we haven't come up with a better structure. Like sometimes you need to take on more of a staff to finish a project. And then that staff inevitably, even when they come on, they know they're going to get laid off by the end of the project. And then they, you know, they, they bloat and then they like downsize as project needs come into play play and there it's because it's it's so project to project structured like that but it seems like a lot of people don't know what the ideal solution is so this first step is genuine like definitely the it's the first step it's it's a good way to kick off like that conversation and think about okay well we've always done it this way but we don't have to what are the ways we could do in moving forward that is more efficient and stable and appealing and because you want to think about employee retention too, you don't want to constantly have turnover in terms of like, especially you know your creative leads. Like you want to make a place that's welcoming. I think Google. Um, I mean, I don't know about recently, so I don't want to necessarily give them the the thumbs up. But I think Google, at least in the past, has done a really good job of thinking about employee retention in that way and making sure like, do people have the right benefits to make this place an appealing place to work because we want the best talent here. So I think if you, people thought about it in, in competitive ways, which I'm sure that they do, um, there are you know, distinctions in your company that you want to make uh, to make sure that you're keeping your employees happy because happy employees make good work as well. It's just a lot to like effectively take and turn over onto its head um, because things have been this way for so long and because there's been this, maybe this level of complacency uh, where people feel like that's just the way it goes and it's always going to go that way. But it feels like in the last couple of years, especially this year, people are starting to take a stand and say, you know what, this doesn't feel right and we don't feel like it has to always go on in this way. And I'm certainly no expert in how studios are run. Uh, I've never worked for a developer before, 
But from what I hear from developers who have spoken to me about it, they feel like they don't know the obvious solution yet, but that they're happy that these conversations are being had. And they're they're being had much more frequently and prominently now. This year, uh, we we've kind of seen like a doubling or a tripling of the the talks surrounding the issue of unionization at, at GDC. Game Workers United is having like I think at least four uh, panels slash roundtables, and then they have got a, a uh, event at some uh, establishment there in the San Francisco area, and uh, it's going to be like you know lots of speeches and whatnot. And, uh, it's going to be so interesting to see. And, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough in a freelance role to work for a, a different variety of sites. Like GameDaily.biz is a really straightforward, just the facts, ma'am kind of approach. And uh, places like DailyDot are like, you know, very BuzzFeed-esque kind of, you know, let's get the, the, the internet's hot take on this kind of thing. And so I've, I've been able to at least approach or think about issue the, the big issues pressing our, our industry uh, in, in a variety of ways. I'm curious, like, what kind of conversations or just thoughts you've had about, like, how do we cover, how do we cover, like, really tough stuff like this at a place like IGN when in in some ways it's all enthusiast media, you know, quotey fingers enthusiast. Yeah, sort of. I mean, like the interesting thing about speaking to a gaming audience is that they're so involved in the industry that even like inside baseball-y news, which mm. some of which we'll pass on because our, our audience just doesn't care about it and we haven't found a way to package it for them in a way that's interesting. Um, but, you know, a lot of them are so invested in the industries and the studios that they actually like hearing about this stuff. So we'll cover studio closures and give people a good like idea of the landscape. Um, and, you know, we have we actually have a piece in the works that will run over um, GDC is the plan. But to talk about unionization, I won't spoil it too much. Um, but the idea being that, like, there we, we have access to so many people who are experts in the field. And occasionally, you know, if we don't have the answers ourselves, our job as journalists is to access that information and appropriately represent it as in as unbiased a way as we possibly can. Um, and, you know, hope that that message resonates and gets people thinking uh, and is educational for people. Uh, so I think like using the sources that we have and the connections that we have in the industry to be and using our own expertise of gauging like, wow, unionization and crunch and these very real issues that people are experiencing in the industry, that's become very important. Like that's become part of the conversation in 2019. And that's something that, you know, we need to touch on because those are the conversations that are happening out there. And we should give our readers an opportunity to weigh in on them and, and at least like, you know, consider them in the um, on our own site as well. So we'll uh, we'll switch gears here uh, to one of our kind of last topics, and I I was really amused and and almost befuddled in a way. I saw you uh, when you tweeted about like, hey, it's it's been my my one year anniversary uh, at IGN. Uh, Jason Schreier and, and like Jeff Grubb and a few others, you were talking about like some some good old days working at like PAX East and planning out your careers. And to me, like I I'm 26, so I'm not nearly as big of a baby as I, I could be. And I've been doing this for coming up on four years uh, in a in a I. I started slightly freelancing, working a, a part-time gig, and now I'm full-time freelance for coming up on a year now. But it's just such a foreign concept to me to think of uh, folks in, in leading roles like yourself, you know, sitting in the back of those kind of, yeah, E3 or PAX buses thinking like, oh, what are you going to cover? Like, I don't know. I don't know where my career is going to go. What were, what were, you've worked at Mashable, Complex, uh, Kotaku, obviously, and now IGN. And uh, in researching for this, it was it was so interesting to see you appear on 
on stuff like CNBC for a, a, a little uh, window interview about, uh, I think, might have been like the upcoming E3 show uh, of whatever year that was. But what were those first couple years as a, as a greenhorn like for you? Well, so I, my career, I suppose, started when I was still in college and I was writing for a site called Gaming Nexus um, that's still in operation and they're a bunch of like amazing guys uh, that I was working with at the time um, and a couple of whom still work there. Uh, but it was a it was a whirlwind because I was just like dove straight into the deep end. And I remember they threw me at my first and this is going to date me, but they threw me at my first um, preview, like big preview event, which was uh, for the original Dragon Age. And, you know, they flew me out to Edmonton and I spent a week there. And frankly, like this experience spoiled me for previews forever because oh, no. you just you don't get this experience anymore. No. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's just uh, like I flew out there for a week. Um, talked to both of the bio docs, as I like to affectionately call them, uh, and like did these like major interviews on in, in, a, in a very early point of my career. And we played the game for the full week, and they even like retained our saves, uh, and I think managed to send it out to us to be able to pick it up where we left off for the uh, launch of the game, which was just an amazing experience. Like that just doesn't happen at preview events. Um, but it you know it really taught me uh, and exposed me to a lot. And I felt like I was just meeting people for the first time and just like getting my head around the actual industry of things. Because there's one thing to play games and then there's another to like know the studios and the studio heads and, you know, histories behind these things. It's a totally different experience. So I was learning a lot of this stuff rapid fire and getting to see a lot of cool things and talk to a lot of cool people. And when I was growing up, I didn't really have... um, friends that were into video games. So I think that's one of the experiences that's fairly unique to most people that I've worked with uh, in the journalism side of the industry. Mm. It's like everyone's like, oh yeah, I grew up like going over to so-and-so's house every weekend. And for me it was, I had my brothers and then I had my, um, who played games, but we were never allowed to own consoles growing up, but our cousins owned consoles. So anytime we would drive over to Boston, we'd manage to like play their SNES. Uh, and that was my like experience, like, you know, just drip fed essentially. So to be able to get into a space where everyone loved games, I felt like I just belonged and it felt like it clicked really well. Uh, and I just knew like, even in college, I just knew, yep, this is what I want to do. Uh, but it is a lot of like, you know, taking on the, the like appointments that you might not have the biggest interests in. It might mean like doing news that you might not be super passionate about writing um, or like reviewing games that weren't your first choice. It's a kind of a matter of proving yourself until you develop the skills to represent on like a triple A title or triple A studio uh, in, on that level. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a very different experience. And now I've gotten to the point where I don't write previews or reviews anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you're, le- you're leading the charge, which is, some will say is uh, just as important, if not way, way, way more important, uh, keeping the ship afloat. Yeah. I mean, I, I miss writing reviews, actually, but I just I don't have the time. They're very time consuming. <laughs> I saw you, uh, you you were on like the Red Dead Redemption 2 spoiler cast and like you seem to like really be enjoying yourself uh, having that like creative like, let me talk about this. Game. Yes, like non-stop. exactly. <laughs> yes, 100 percent. Yeah. I mean, I get to like work with content, of course, um, as the EIC of games. I'm working with content all the time, but not super directly. It's more so like you know, coming in and saying, you know, I like this angle or I like this headline, like, or Mm. you guys should like pursue this story and then I'll back off and I'll go to this other thing and talk to this other team about this other um, project that they're working on. So I I feel like I'm touching that content in a lot of ways, but it's definitely 
very different from my roots of like really digging in. And for Red Dead, uh, I played that game in a haze in a week uh, to just like oh burn God. through it because I really want, like I love the original Red Dead. I have a you lot of monster. personal connections to that game. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to, you know, for our spoiler cast, we, we filmed them pretty early on. Uh, so I burned through as quickly as possible. And um, that was actually the first podcast that I, first and last so far that I've hosted. But it was it was such a good experience to just like be able to like do something that came from my roots, which is just talking about um, a game and dissecting it and analyzing it and getting like way too over the top about the characters and you know relating to the characters way too much uh, because really at the end of the day it's just a piece of fiction. But I I love like getting engrossed in a world and characters like that. And it's funny you mentioned kind of getting spoiled early on with uh, your trip to Bioware and and having that like crazy week. And I and I've I've heard those stories you know uh, a few times of what the like different past generation of game journalists were kind of exposed to the craziness of all that and i think it, in in a small modest way of my own i was spoiled myself early on i like i mentioned earlier my first uh podcast no excuse me my first freelance uh opportunity was playboy almost right out of college because uh, they were like begging people like hey give us content we'll we'll practically approve anything and i was like heck yeah and i had already gone to gdc and gotten some leads on games to preview and whatnot and i think like i did two or three relatively like 800 to 1000 word game previews for some like semi-interesting like indie games and i got a check in the mail a month later for like thirteen hundred dollars for like three things and i was like whoa so like three or four hundred bucks a piece and then i (laughs) and then i (laughs) swung hard into the rest of the industry and i'm like ah shit and so I, I suppose, you know, where, as we wrap up here, where do you want IGN to go? And like, what kinds of conversations are you having with, you know, your peers and your fellow leaders there? You know, uh, no, no ship turns too fast, but, you know, that, that doesn't keep the waters from tossing around and churning a bit. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff that like, we're already doing very, very well. And so in those aspects, it's more about challenging my team to kind of think about them in creative, new, experimental ways to see, like, what else can we do for our audience? Like, I think our review structure is, like, pretty straightforward. And um, Dan Stapleton is, like, a, a staple of the of the journalism ha, industry. Ha, ha. Yeah, it has to be said at least once a podcast. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's, like, been in the industry for so long at IGN for so long. Um, and he, what, he does what he does very well. But, you know, are there ways that we can be adding more resource value for readers, uh, like thinking creatively and outside of the box uh, to try to make reviews even more useful? So we're experimenting with some stuff there and like with previews as well. Like what angles do we take? Like, can we have a different format that's a little bit more enjoyable to read? So that's a lot of stuff that, you know, where we do things very well, I would like to just see what else we can do, you know, push forward, like kind of speaking uh, back to what I said earlier about like you can always improve so like you know, even if we're doing something well we can always improve from there if we just think about it creatively enough and then outside of that I think like a big thing that I've been telling my team is um, to take temperatures of like what conversations people are having that we might not have thought of because although we are a good like 
it's a good way of crowdsourcing just by talking internally in the office and seeing what do we think is funny, what do we think is interesting or newsworthy. Um, it's also like we, there might be something that we miss that other people are talking about out there in the internet. And so being a part of those communities and saying like, oh, well, this person brought up this interesting point and I don't totally agree, but it does like make me think about things in a new way I hadn't thought about before. So, you know, let's try to encapsulate and capture that sentiment so that those people out there who feel that way are feeling like they're spoken to or they have a platform to talk about those things and whether or not we agree or disagree on the same thing. I like having those like intellectual debates like I had a um, speaking of Red Dead uh, John Ryan who I uh, just hired as my senior editor of features mm -hmm. uh, he's he like what was it we were debating about Dutch and I thought he was a very nuanced villain and I think JR felt like he wasn't that he was a little bit more black and white in certain areas and so we were just like you know even though we disagreed it was just such an interesting conversation um, it's one that we kind of captured in the spoiler cast but we had had it before uh, which is always hard, like trying to recapture that uh, same level of enthusiasm, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's it's just like it's a nice way to kind of grapple with an idea and think about it in a new way that you might not have before. And I want to make sure that we're doing as much of that as possible, is offering our readers as many viewpoints as possible, and and making sure they feel that they're represented, that their voices are heard, but also that we're doing our due diligence and having this big platform to help kind of like curate that discussion. And, you know, I, I, I really like where IGN has gone uh, with you guys just ran a really, uh, really nice kind of encompassing Black History Month uh, series of features. And, you know, uh, just making the simple the simple act of calling out like, hey, we want people who normally are marginalized voices to feel free to pitch us and, and talk about the things that they feel matters to them and the communities that they belong to. And are those the kind, same kinds of conversations you're having when you, uh, you know, kickstart ideas like that? Absolutely. I think like one of my favorite pieces out of that, uh, that, you know, the month long series of features that we ran for Black History Month was uh, the one on like The Sims 4 and how there's this modding community out there that didn't feel like the um, hair textures or the uh, skin tone pack mm -hmm. was sufficient enough to feel that they were being represented. And you know, especially for a game like The Sims, when you're playing around creatively like that, like you want to be able to have that flexibility. And I think it's so wonderful that there's this community out there that I had never known about until this um, writer pitched us the story that they're working on these things themselves. And like the gaming community can be such a wonderful place, like a creative, passionate place. And so having those kinds of stories that tap into that um, and being able to tell our readers about that, like that's an experience that um, hopefully was new for a lot of our readers or, and hope for hopefully for some of them, you know, resonated with them. And they were like, yeah, you know, I've been following this modding community for however long. And it's great to see that being reflected here at IGN. Uh, and I like those kinds of stories because it helps express things outside of just like, here's the news and our you know reviews, all the things that you expect, all the things that are incredibly valuable and tantamount to our editorial voice. Uh, but it's just expanding the range of that. We're such a big team here. There's so much that we can do. But I want to make sure, as impossible as it is, I want to make sure that we hit like everything that everyone wants to read about, you can find at IGN. And, you know, in, in the same way that you hear uh, like or see videos of like kids, uh, you know, African-American kids like reacting with pure joy to like going to see something like Black Panther or uh, little girls excited at meeting uh, 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 Captain Marvel. Uh, you begin. I, I feel, yeah, it is important to have these kinds of stories 
and show these sides of the communities that aren't getting covered as much because there are people paying attention and maybe on those like first Fridays, you know, you get someone new to the kind of community saying like, you know, yeah, I'm sure lots of people ask the whole, the obvious question of like, how do I get in the games journalism? But maybe you'll get, begin to get voices who uh, haven't been as prevalent before. And they know that a place like IGN is a safe place to uh, ask those kinds of questions and to begin to take those first steps because here's, this story and clearly this team thought it was important to share this kind of uh, uh, less uh, heard of part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like there are stories that um, I know that like there's some people in our audience that want to come for just the reviews and they don't care about the news or features or previews or whatever else. And that's totally fair. I want to have that. I want that reader to be served with our content. Um, And there might be people who like just don't care about Fortnite. They don't want to hear about Fortnite again. And that's also totally fair. So if there's a piece of content that somebody doesn't want to read, I'm hoping that there's something else that they find of value on the site. But I want to make sure that anybody who comes to the site, there's something that resonates with them. There's something that they found of value. They learned something or they enjoyed something or they, you know, uh, had an opportunity to weigh in on a discussion that was happening. Just anything that they're looking for, we're hoping to be as diversified as possible so that it's as welcoming as possible to as many people as possible. And thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. You know, I really appreciate it. It's it's not often you get to talk to the head of a big company and really pick their brain about, uh, you know, the challenges that the industry is facing on both sides. And I think it speaks uh, well to your character and to the way IGN is being run uh, under your leadership. And I, I know I'm, I'm still in that IGN slack, even though I don't get to work for you guys as much as I as much as I would like. But uh, I, I enjoy seeing as many of you uh, flourish as possible. So, uh, folks, if you've enjoyed this talk, you can hear one every Monday here on the 1099 podcast. Uh, next week is GDC, the Game Developers Conference, and I am uh, attempting to line up a few interviews. I'm uh, slow to respond on emails here, but hopefully getting some very important people to talk to me about you know similar issues that are uh, affecting the industry and the people who you know make the games you love to play. And uh, I'll also be doing a series of kind of shorter podcasts, you know, with as many developers as I can talking about some of the interesting topics going around GDC. Uh, Tina, any last words? I I have just enjoyed this conversation so, so much. No, thank you. I I appreciate all your kind words. And, um, you know, I hope uh, like all the stuff that I said was was smart and helpful and interesting in some kind of way. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 